This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this next story comes to us from Senator Tom Cotton. And as you know, we don't do any politics on this show, but this politician's different. He had gone to Harvard Law School, and while he didn't do something ordinary law graduates do, he decided to join the U.S. military at the height of war. And he didn't go as a military lawyer. No, Tom Cotton was deployed to Iraq, where he led the 101st Airborne as an infantry platoon leader. He then, in his next tour, ended up in Arlington National Cemetery in the Old Guard, and the Old Guard being the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment to our nation's most sacred shrine, the Arlington National Cemetery. You're about to hear excerpts from and stories from his book, Sacred Duty, and it's the story of the Old Guard and, of course, the story of our most sacred national cemetery, Arlington. Every headstone at Arlington tells a story. These are the tales of heroes. I thought, as I put the toe of my combat boot against the white marble, I pulled a miniature American flag out of my assault pack, and I pushed it three inches into the ground at my heel. I stepped aside to inspect it, making sure it met the precise standard we had briefed to our troops earlier that day. Satisfied, I moved to the next headstone to keep up with my soldiers. I planted flag after flag, as did the soldiers on the rows around me. Bending over to plant those flags brought me eye level to the lettering on those marble stones. The stories continued with each one. Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, America's wars marched by, Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, Korea, World War II, World War I. Some soldiers died in very old age, others still were teenagers. Crosses, stars of David, crescents and stars, every religion, every race, every age, every region of America is represented in these fields of stone. After a while, my hand began to hurt from pushing in the pointed gold tips of those flags. There had been no rain that week, so the ground was hard. I asked my soldiers how they were moving so fast and seemingly pain-free. They asked if I was using a bottle cap, and I said no. (laughs) Several shook their heads in disbelief. Apparently, missing a bottle cap was a grave sin on par with forgetting your rifle or your night vision goggles on patrol in Iraq. Those kinds of little tricks and techniques were not briefed in that day's written order, but rather they get passed down from seasoned soldiers. After some good-natured ribbing at my expense, one of my privates squared me away with a spare bottle cap, and we kept moving. We finish up, mission complete, came over the radio, and we began the long walk up Arlington's Hills and back to Fort Myer. In just a few hours that afternoon, we had placed a flag at every gravesite in this sacred ground, more than 200,000 of them. From President John F. Kennedy, to the unknown soldiers, to the youngest privates from our oldest wars, 
Every hero in Arlington had a few moments that day with a soldier who, in a simple act of remembrance, delivered a powerful message to the dead and the living alike. You are not forgotten. That day, the Thursday before Memorial Day, is known as Flags Inn at Arlington National Cemetery. And the soldiers who place the flags belong to the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, better known as the Old Guard. My turn at Flags Inn came in 2007 between my tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Old Guard is literally the Old Guard, the oldest active duty infantry regiment in the Army, dating back to 1784, three years older than our Constitution itself. The regiment got its nickname in 1847 from Winfield Scott, the longest serving general in American history. Scott gave the regiment the honor of leading the victory march into Mexico City, where he directed his staff to take your hats off to the old guard of the army. The nickname stuck. Perhaps Scott felt an old kinship himself toward the 3rd Infantry because he had fought the British alongside them outside of Niagara Falls 33 years earlier in the War of 1812. But the Old Guard's performance in the Mexican War also merited the honor by itself. Among the few regiments to participate in both of the major campaigns of the war, Monterey in 1846 and Mexico City in 1847, the Old Guard made history alongside American military legends. A young lieutenant later wrote that the loss of the 3rd Infantry and commissioned officers was especially severe in the brutal street-to-street -street fighting in Monterey. That lieutenant's name was Ulysses S. Grant. Likewise, the 3rd Infantry was part of the main effort the next year at the Battle of Cerro Gordo, the last stand on the road to Mexico City by the famed Mexican general Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna. The Mexicans had a numerically superior force on the high ground of both sides of the only passable road on the way to the capital. But Santa Anta had underestimated the Americans' ingenuity and audacity. With a young captain of engineers blazing the path, the 3rd Infantry hacked through the jungle and crossed many ravines to attack the Mexicans from their rear, finishing them off with the bayonet charge. That captain's name was Robert E. Lee. And to this day, across the river, the Old Guard remains the only unit in the Army to march with bayonets fixed to their rifles in honor of their forerunner's bravery at Cerro Gordo. And you're listening to Tom Cotton, and he's delivering this speech at the Kirby Center at Hillsdale College. Sacred Duty, a soldier's tour at Arlington National Cemetery was the book. And it chronicled his experience as a member of the Old Guard, the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, to our nation's most sacred shrine, Arlington National Cemetery. More of Tom Cotton's story here on Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories and Tom Cotton's story, particularly his service serving in the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, the so-called Old Guard. And by the way, he gave this speech at Hillsdale College. This speech was also part of Imprimus Digest, and it happens to be one of my favorites. And now we continue with his story of Arlington and the Old Guard, a regiment that both Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee served in prior to the Civil War. Back to Senator Tom Cotton. Like those two antagonists, the Old Guard returned to the battlefield in the Civil War, fighting with other so-called regulars, the career professional soldiers of the federal government, as opposed to the volunteer soldiers of the state regiments. The Old Guard fought every major battle on the Eastern Theater of the War, from the First Battle of Bull Run to Gettysburg, where they helped hold off Confederate charges against the weak and salient in Union lines in the wheat field. Watching from the nearby Round Top Hills, a state militiaman later wrote, for two years, the regulars taught us how to fight like soldiers. At the wheat field at Gettysburg, they taught us how to die like soldiers. The round of the fight, the regiment later served in Grant's headquarters at Appomattox Courthouse as he accepted the surrender of their old pathfinder from Sarah Gordo. After the war, the Old Guard went west, as the American frontier did, and ultimately to the Philippines at the turn of the century. They fought under General John Blackjack Pershing. They fought against Muslim radicals in places like Mindanao and Jolo, where the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda have franchises today. They guarded our southern border with Mexico from Pancho Villa during World War I, and they trained the vast new army of recruits for World War II before deploying to Europe in the final months of the war. When they returned from war, the army assigned its oldest unit to its most sacred ground, Arlington National Cemetery. The cemetery seal calls it our nation's most sacred shrine, and with good reason. To borrow from Tocqueville in a different context, those rolling hills seem called by some secret design of providence to become our nation's preeminent cemetery. George Washington's adopted son, Martha's only surviving son, bought the land that became Arlington in 1778 to be closer to his mother, the only father he had ever known, and their beloved Mount Vernon. George Washington advised him on the purchase and correspondence from his winter camp at Valley Forge. But our national triumph three years later at Yorktown shattered the family's dreams. Their son died of a fever contracted there, leaving behind a six-month-old heir to his land. George and Martha raised that boy, George Washington Park Custis, as their own. Wash, as he was known, watched up close as General Washington became President Washington. When Wash came of age and inherited the land in 1802, he initially christened it Mount Washington in honor of the adoptive father he revered so much. Though he later renamed it Arlington, Wash used the land as a kind of public memorial in his lifelong mission to honor his father. 
from hosting celebrations on Washington's birthday to displaying artifacts and memorabilia from Mount Vernon and Washington's campaigns for the public to building the Grand Mansion still visible from the Lincoln Memorial and Memorial Bridge, Arlington got its start as a shrine to the father of our country. A new resident arrived in 1831 when then-Lieutenant Robert E. Lee married Wash's only surviving child, Mary. Lee himself was the son of Washington's trusted cavalry commander during the Revolutionary War. And for 30 years, the Lees made Arlington their home and raised a family there between his military assignments. Because of these ties to Washington and his own military genius and the fame derived from both, Lee was offered command of a Union army as the Civil War started, but he declined it on the spot. His longtime mentor, none other than the 3rd Infantry's old commander, Winfield Scott, and now President Lincoln's General-in-Chief, scolded Lee. He said, Lee, you have made the greatest mistake of your life, but I feared it would be so. Scott encouraged Lee to resign his commission, which Lee did a couple days later in a letter written from Arlington House. Lee left Arlington for Richmond that day, never to return. And the United States Army occupied Arlington on May 24th, 1861, and it has held the ground ever since. Arlington at first became a military post, key terrain to the defense of the capital. The Old Guard even camped there for a few days in the summer of 1861 before the first battle of Bull Run. But as the horrific war ground on, casualties mounted and Washington's cemeteries filled up. Montgomery Meigs, the Quartermaster General, and Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, detested Robert E. Lee as a traitor and saw a double opportunity. By turning Arlington into a Union cemetery, they gained hundreds of acres of new land for graves while also foreclosing Lee's return after the war. On May 13, 1864, Private William Christman was the first soldier interred at Arlington. Thousands more would soon join him, fixing Arlington as a new national cemetery. Or so they thought. Lee's son had inherited the family's claim to their old farm. Himself a Confederate officer, his name nevertheless reflected the nation's deep roots at Arlington. George Washington, Custis Lee. Known as Custis, he petitioned Congress to no avail and then sued in federal court to evict the army as trespassers from the old family farm. United States v. Lee worked its way over the years to the Supreme Court, which finally upheld the Lee's family claim. But fortunately for the government, for the nation, and for the souls at rest in Arlington, Custis was magnanimous in victory, asking only for just compensation. And in 1883, he deeded the land back to the government in return for $150,000. The Secretary of War who accepted the deed was Robert Todd Lincoln, the son of President Lincoln. After that final act of reconciliation, 
between the firstborn sons of a great president and his famed rebel antagonist, Arlington's dead, could finally rest in peace for eternity. Perhaps then it is fitting, perhaps another one of those secret designs of providence, that our, old, our nation's oldest regiment found its final home at our nation's most sacred ground. In 1948, when the old, the old Guard became the Army's ceremonial unit and official escort to the President. For 71 years, the Old Guard has marched in inaugural parades and performed ceremonies at the White House and the Pentagon and provided color guards and drill teams for events around the Capitol, among many other missions. But one mission takes priority above all else. Military honor funerals in Arlington National Cemetery. Funerals first. That was our standard in my day and it remains the standard today. In manning, in training, in operating, funerals always come first for the old guard. Funerals are, as we said, a no-fail, zero-defect mission. While we often perform more than 20 funerals in a day, we knew that for the fallen and their families, each funeral was a once-in-a-lifetime moment, a lifetime in the making. No matter how often we conducted funerals, and most of us performed hundreds and hundreds of funerals, the pressure to achieve perfection for the fallen and their families never relented. And you've been listening to Tom Cotton telling the story of our nation's oldest regiment, and also our nation's most sacred cemetery. And what a story it is indeed. And when we return, more of Senator Tom Cotton, his story, his service, his sacred duty, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of the oldest regiment in America, and we're talking about the 3rd United States Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard, and also the story, well, the story of the most sacred memorial and cemetery in the United States. That's Arlington Cemetery. And if you've never been, go. If you're taking a tour of Washington with your family, you must, must see the work that these men do. And Tom Cotton had the honor and the privilege to serve in the Old Guard and, well, attend to these funerals and tend to this sacred cemetery. Let's continue with this, this remarkable story. Nothing interferes with the Old Guard's mission in Arlington. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing. Not even 9-11. On that beautiful morning, the 9 o'clock funerals were underway when American Airlines Flight 77 slammed into the Pentagon, 
blasting debris across Washington Boulevard and into the cemetery's southeastern corner. The Old Guard's medical platoon rushed to the scene, becoming the first soldiers to deploy to a battlefield in the War on Terror. Yet those 9 o'clock funerals continued. So did the 10 o'clock funerals and the 11 o'clock funerals. And over the next month, even as hundreds of Old Guard soldiers pulled guard duty at the Pentagon and carried remains from that crash site, funerals never stopped in Arlington. As one Old Guard soldier told me, our standards remain the same. Whomever we laid to rest, we spent hours preparing for that last perfect moment of honor to our fallen. Old Guard companies have industrial quality press machines in their barracks to achieve those razor sharp creases on their uniforms. We measured uniform insignia out to 1 64th of an inch. Sitting down in uniform between funerals was prohibited to avoid wrinkles. We prepared for funerals in sweltering summer heat, in winter blizzards, and driving rain, even when inclement weather shuts the cemetery to the public, it doesn't stop the old guard from performing funerals on time and to standard. We constantly practiced and rehearsed. Each morning, casket teams practiced at folding the flag, even though they had folded a flag hundreds, if not thousands of times before. Firing parties practiced their three-volley salute, volleys that they fired dozens of times every day. In the cemetery, we talk through key sequences and cues before each funeral, sometimes conducting the very same talk through six times in a day. Nothing was taken for granted. For rare, complex funerals, the old guard goes to even greater lengths. I participated once in a group burial for 12 soldiers killed in a helicopter crash in Iraq. We rehearsed the mission for several days in a row to be sure it was perfect. Last year, the Old Guard dedicated the newest 27 acres of the cemetery by laying to rest two unknown Civil War soldiers whose remains had been recently discovered at the battlefield of Second Battle of Bull Run. The soldiers involved rehearsed that mission six times before performing it. Researchers believe, incidentally, that those two soldiers may have died from wounds suffered during the Union's failed assault on the third and final day of the battle, an assault in which the Old Guard participated. And Arlington is not the only site of the Old Guard's no-fail mission to honor our fallen. Since the earliest days of the Iraq War, the Old Guard has performed the dignified transfer of remains at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware where our nation's fallen soldiers return home for the last time. My tour with the Old Guard coincided with the surge in Iraq. So sadly, we had Dover missions almost every night. And they typically happen at night, given the flight times and the time zone changes. But whatever the time, whatever the conditions, the Old Guard was there when the remains landed, no question asked. My soldiers and I once drove to Dover two days early to get ahead of a potential blizzard. If a soldier was coming home, the old guard would be there to honor him.
Most Americans have seen the iconic photographs of flag-draped cases at Dover. Few have stood among them on that windy ramp. But Old Guard soldiers have. We've stood alone in the cargo hold, inspecting the flags for the slightest deficiencies. We've strained with the heavy case of a soldier, still in full combat gear packed in ice, and we felt the lightweight cases of the dissociated remains of a soldier killed by an improvised bomb, the enemy's most deadly weapon in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've saluted from the airplane as the remains were driven away to be prepared for return to their family. These lonely and poignant moments at Dover, like the Old Guard's unflagging dedication to our fallen in Arlington and its conduct of Flags Inn over Memorial Day weekend, tells not only a story about our war dead and the soldiers who honor them, but also a story about the nation on whose behalf they serve. We go to the greatest lengths to recover fallen comrades. We honor them in the most precise and exacting ceremonies. We set aside national holidays to remember and celebrate them. We do these things for them, of course, but also for us, the living. Their stories of heroism, of sacrifice, of patriotism, reminds us of what is best in ourselves. And they teach our children what is best in America. In doing so, we assure our fighting men and women around the world that they, too, will be remembered in death and their families will be cared for. A mutual pledge that shaped our identity as soldiers and our willingness to fight and, if necessary, to die for our country. It is well that war is so terrible or we should grow too fond of it, remarked Robert E. Lee as he watched his army slaughter Union troops at Fredericksburg. No one understands that lesson better than the soldiers who have fought our wars on the front lines and the soldiers who have honored their sacrifices at places like Arlington and Dover. We know that sometimes our nation must, must wage war to defend all that we hold dear, but we also know the terrible costs inflicted by war. No one summed up better what the Old Guard of Arlington means for our nation than did Sergeant Major of the Army Dan Daly. He shared a story with me about taking a foreign military leader through Arlington to lay a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Sergeant Major Daly said, I was explaining what the Old Guard does. He was looking out the window at all those headstones. After a long pause, still looking at those headstones, he said, now I know why your soldiers fight so hard. You take better care of your dead than we do our living. Americans take better care of our dead than others do of their living. And by the way, I'm paraphrasing what that foreign leader said. That was Tom Cotton who, by the way, well, he did a tour of duty at Arlington National Cemetery. He's a senator from Arkansas. He had graduated from Harvard Law and did something not many Harvard Law graduates do. He went straight to Iraq, and not to be a JAG attorney, 
He became a platoon leader of the 101st Airborne. His next tour of duty, Arlington National Cemetery, and then back to Afghanistan to serve his country. We don't do politics on this show, but my goodness, this isn't an ordinary politician. And Tom Cotton's story, his book, Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour in Arlington National Cemetery. These are stories from that book here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for the story of a song. We brought you There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Light My Fire by The Doors, Give Me Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our podcasts. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of great American storytelling. And now, the story behind the song, The House of the Rising Sun. Here's Jesse. I was on assignment in New Orleans, walking towards Bourbon Street, when I heard a grisly voice yelling at me from across the street. Hey, you! Do you know where you're standing? A disheveled transient yelled. I was petrified. Rather than say anything, I simply shook my head with my mouth open, thinking I was about to get robbed or shanked or both. His words echoed down the street, sending a shiver up my spine. I looked up at the bright white three-story building gleaming in the morning sun. Could this be the place? I had completely forgotten it was here. It's almost as if it found me. Like many classic folk ballads, The House of the Rising Sun is of uncertain authorship. And it turns out that this is one of several possible locations for the legendary Bordello. The oldest published version of the lyrics is that printed by Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925 in a column titled Old Songs That Men Have Sung in Adventure Magazine. The oldest known recording of the song under the title Rising Sun Blues is by Appalachian artists Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster, who recorded it on September 6th of 1933. It's a song that's been covered from artists like Dolly Parton to Nina Simone, Waylon Jennings to Joan Baez. Bob Dylan liked the song so much that he recorded it on his first album in 1962. There is a house down in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. Now, the release had no songwriting credit, but the liner notes indicate that Dylan learned this version of the song from Dave Van Ronk. Here's Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk from the documentary No Direction Home. God, I'm a one. The House of the Rising Sun is on that record. Well, I'd never done that song before, but I heard it every night because Van Ronk would do it. 
So, you know, I thought he's really onto something with the song, so I just recorded it. Bobby picked up the chord changes for the song. For me, it really altered the song considerably, although the lyric was pretty much the straight house of the rising sun lyric and so was the melody. And when he was doing, I guess it was his first album, he asked me if I would mind if I, you know, if he recorded my version of House of the Rising Sun. And I had some plans to record it, so I said, well, gee, Bob, I'd rather you didn't because I'm going to record it myself soon. And Bobby said, uh-oh. The mystery of being in a recording studio did something to me, and those are the songs that came out. Now the only thing a gambler needs is a suitcase and a trunk. After he recorded it, I had to stop singing the song because people were constantly uh, accusing me of having got the song from Bobby's record. Now that was very, very annoying. But I couldn't blame that on him, and I, I didn't. The whole thing was a tempest in a teapot. Later on, when Eric Burden and the Animals picked the song up from Bobby and recorded it, Bobby told me that he had had to drop the song because everybody was accusing him of ripping it off from Eric Burden. <laughs> That version from The Animals was the most successful commercial version to date, recorded in 1964 in just one take. It was a number one hit in the UK, US, and France. Oh, mother, tell your children not to do what I have done. Spend your lives in sin and misery. When Bob Dylan first heard the Animals version on his car radio, he stopped to listen, jumped out of the car, and began banging his fists on the hood. This was the sound that made Bob Dylan switch from an acoustic guitar to an electric. Various places in New Orleans have been proposed as the inspiration for the song with varying plausibility. The phrase House of the Rising Sun is often understood as a euphemism for a brothel, but it's not known whether or not the house described in the lyrics was an actual or a fictitious place. One theory is that the song is about a woman who killed her father, an alcoholic gambler, who had beaten his wife. Therefore, the House of the Rising Sun might be a jailhouse from which one would be the first to see the sunrise an idea supported by the lyric mentioning a ball and chain, but that phrase has been slang for marital relationships for at least as long as the song has been in print. Because women often sang the song, another theory is that the House of the Rising Sun was where prostitutes were detained while treated for syphilis. Since cures with mercury were ineffective, going back was very unlikely. There are many places that could be the legendary House of the Rising Sun. One possible location was a small hotel in the French Quarter that burned down in 1822. 
Another possibility is the Rising Sun Hall, listed in the 19th century city directions, which no longer exist. And another possible location is here, at 826 St. Louis Street in the French Quarter. Between 1862 and 1874, and it was a house of ill repute, run by a Madame Marianne Lesolie Levant. Whose surname means the rising sun in French. Here's the platters from 1965. Then there are some that say the building is just part of our imagination, a symbol of sin and misery in the house of the rising sun. Or to paraphrase Freud, sometimes lyrics are just lyrics. Here's Waylon Jennings. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. There is a house down in New They call the rising sun And it's been the ruin For many poor boy And me, oh God, I'm one She sewed these old blue jeans My father was a gambler It's when he's on a drunk Go tell my baby 
This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history in 1981, you guessed it, MTV was launched with the words, quote, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll, spoken by John Leck, and played over footage of the first space shuttle launch, Countdown of Columbia, which took place earlier that year, and of the launch of Apollo 11. Those words were immediately followed by the original MTV theme song, a crunching rock tune composed by Jonathan Elias and John Peterson playing over photos of the Apollo 11 moon landing with the flag featuring MTV's logo changing various colors, textures, and designs. MTV producers Alan Goodman and Fred Siebert used this public domain footage as a concept. Siebert said they had originally planned to use Neil Armstrong's One Small Step quote But lawyers said that Armstrong owns his name and likeness, and Armstrong had refused, so the quote was replaced with a beeping sound. The shuttle launch identification ran at the top of every hour in various forms from MTV's first day until it was pulled in early 1986 in the wake of the Challenger disaster. Here's that very first broadcast from the launch of MTV on this day back in 81. Seven, six... Five, four, we've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. Now, just moments ago, all of the VJs and the crew here at MTV collectively hit our executive producer, Sue Steinberg, over the head with a bottle of champagne, and behold, a new concept is born. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. We'll be right back to introduce the other VJs and the other folks who are going to be with us on MTV. And it's true. It lived up to its words, actually. The first music video was shown, that was shown on MTV was Video Killed the Radio Star, originally only to homes in New Jersey.
And here's an ad that was shown after the first ever music video aired on MTV. Again, you just heard the song. And right before Pat Benatar's You Better Run video aired. In the beginning was the music. But there was no one around to hear it. As the population grew in numbers, music grew in popularity. Man invented the radio and the phonograph. High fidelity made quite a splash. But it was full stereo sound that made the explosion. Soon television came along and gave us the gift of sight. But it was cable that gave us the freedom of choice. For a while it seemed there was nothing new on the horizon. Announcing the latest achievement in home entertainment. The power of sight. Video. The power of sound. MTV Music Television. The second music video to appear on the launch of MTV was Pat Benatar's You Better Run. Sporadically, the screen would go black. When, employee, when an employee at MTV inserted a tape into a VCR. And here's Pat Benadar, Penatar talking about being featured in the launch of MTV. I remember the day that it began, that MTV began. I want my MTV. They gave us the, the airtime and when it was going to actually go on television. And I have to tell you that in the course of a week, our lives changed and it never was the same again, ever. What you trying to do to my soul? There were like five videos, that's all there were. And they played them 24 hours a day. It was nuts. I mean, it was so much fun because you had no history. I said, go away and leave me alone. When I was 26, I was looking to be as outrageous as I... There wasn't anything that was outrageous enough. I love You Better Run because You Better Run was the very first thing. And it's so pure. I remember the director, he put a fan on. And he said, okay, I'm going to turn up the music and I want you to go. And Yo, I don't go, okay? I don't go. I was, and I was so pissed, so mad. So that's why that whole attitude, so it was perfect. MTV's effect was immediate in areas where the new music video channel was carried. Within two months, record stores in areas where MTV was available were selling music that local radio stations were not even playing. Men at Work, Bow Wow Wow, The Human League, just a few examples. When we come back, MTV matures. And, of course, MTV Unplugged. When we come back, MTV was born on this day in history.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This day in history, in 1981, MTV was born. Again, the original purpose of MTV was to be music television, playing music videos 24 hours a day, seven days a week, guided by on-air personalities known as VJs or video jocks. What a crazy idea. And in the beginning, it's so true. I remember I was in New Jersey and one of the early subscribers. We were lucky we had the right cable package, and we were the test marketers. And there was nothing on. There was nothing. (laughs) And for a long time, by the way, there was nothing on. But one guy changed it all, really, and raised it to its highest art form. And like the guy, don't like the guy. And I don't know why you don't like the guy, but if you don't, you probably have your reasons. Michael Jackson. And you were listening to Thriller coming in. And in December of 1983, MTV debuted Michael Jackson's 14-minute thriller film and music video. The first to combine the world of filmmaking and music together. And this is just a whole new way of thinking about the art form. It was MTV's first worldwide premiere video. Guinness World Records listed it in 2006 as the most successful music video selling over 9 million copies. In 2009, the video was inducted into the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, the first music video to ever receive this honor for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Here's Michael Jackson talking about the creation of this music video. I remember my original approach was, how do you make zombies and monsters dance without it being comical? So I said, we have to do just the right kind of movement so it doesn't become something that you laugh at, but it just has to be, you know, take it to another level. So I got in a room with Michael Peters, and he and I together kind of imagined... Uh, how these zombies should move by making faces in the mirror. And I used to come to rehearsal sometime with monster makeup on, and and I loved doing that. So uh, he and I collaborated, and we both choreographed uh, the piece. And I thought I should start, you know, like that kind of thing. Then go into this kind of jazzy step, you know. Kind of gruesome things like that, you know. Not too, you know, too much ballet or whatever. <laughs> No, not too much ballet, but its own kind of aesthetic. He developed it. Almost MTV dancing. July 13th, 1985, MTV MTV broadcast Live Aid in the United States, helping to fundraise and raise awareness of famine in Ethiopia. Here's guitarist for Dire Straits, Jack Sonny, talking about playing Live Aid from an interview he did with us in the studio a few months back. Live Aid, Wembley Stadium, fully packed, you know, the television things going on. It, it was Sting, Sting we're, we're waiting behind stage to go on, and Sting comes up behind me and, and nudges me, and he's going to come out and sing, sing his parts with us. And I was the one who would, who would lead those parts and sort of guide people. And, and he, he's, he's looking at me, and he's going, oh, I can't believe how many people are out there. Are you nervous? <laughs> and I'm looking at him thinking... I said, no, man, honestly, I said, I've waited my entire life for this. This is, you know, this is it. And the whole world was watching it live, and that hadn't happened before, and MTV allowed it. On July 26, 1986, Peter Gabriel had scored his first number one hit with Sledgehammer. The song was everywhere in the summer of 86, but especially on MTV. In fact, Sledgehammer was the most played music video on MTV of all time. Here's the video's director, Steven Johnson, talking about how the entire video was created in about a week. We decided up front that uh, we were going to use animation, and I 
Also had sort of a technical trick up my sleeve for doing uh, uh, lip sync stop motion, uh, which is what almost every shot in Sledgehammer is. Uh, as it ended up, uh, the actual shooting uh, took less than a week and had a team of seven animators working and not around the clock. It was rather normal days. So we sh shot it in uh, five or six days and uh, I was able to edit it in two days flat. And there wasn't just rock and roll, folks. There was rap. And in August of 1988, MTV premiered Yo! MTV Raps, a weekly rap music show which featured Fab Five with Dr. Dre and Ed Lover as hosts. The show opens with DJ Jazzy Jeff, a.k.a. Will Smith, with the intro. Right, let's do this, I'm DJ Jazzy Jeff. Hey, yo, I'm the prince. And I'm Ready Rock C. Hold up, what's this? We want to let everybody know where it's at. It's right here. Yo, MTV Raps. Yo, what's up? I'm Jam Master J. This is Run DMC, and welcome to Yo MTV Rap Show. And it wasn't just rap, there was programming. In 1993, MTV debuted Beavis and Butthead. An original animated yeah. series starring two suburban misfits. Greg, this is just his favorite show. Created by Mike Judge, the show is the first spinoff from MTV Awards winning animated variety series Liquid Television. Here's a clip from the very first episode of Beavis and Butthead called Frog Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, a frog. Frog baseball! Get him! Between shows like Beavis and Butthead, Real World, Road Rules, Jackass, MTV Cribs, and The Osbournes, MTV would gradually stop playing music videos altogether. The show Portlandia on IFC recently had a sketch with the main characters, Fred and Carrie, rally former MTV staff to take back MTV, only to find the network had been taken over by tweens when they came face-to-face -face with the company's bratty 12-year-old CEO. Hide it! I want my MTV! Wait, what? We're here to take over. What? What? Take back MTV. Take back the youth-oriented channel from the youth. Have you been watching your own channel? It's garbage. I don't even know what it is. It's a mess. Music is dead. Cable TV has 500 more channels since you were last watching. But music is dead because you killed it. You're killing it. I don't know who raised you or how you got here, but that's not nice. The tweens have taken control. Yeah, but we're taking control. No. Yes. We're in your office. We invaded your space. Now what? You're going to call security? It's not going to work. It's our time again. We used to watch shows like 120 Minutes to see cool bands. Yeah, like Sonic Youth. Here's the first thing. Sonic Youth, the people are like 50 years old. But they're musicians. They're, 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 they're still relevant. <laughs> Dumb. They are? Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore are divorced. And you're just the orphans left behind. <laughs> I suggest that you and your little friend turn right around and get out of my office. Yeah? 
MTV launched MTV Unplugged, though, and this is what separates it, I think, from everything in 1989. And one of the most memorable unplugs was Nirvana's Unplugged, where people got to see and hear the real talent behind this band. Here, some MTV producers recall the night that Nirvana recorded and performed their first and only Unplugged album. It was quiet. You could hear a pin drop. I mean, it was the most amazing, amazing setting. At the same time, there was this intensity and, and uh, sort of electricity in the room. Good evening. There was a feeling in the air in that room. The room was packed. You know, we had, we had more people than we could fit. The fire marshal almost shut us down. You could really feel the buzz, though, in the room. Like, I think people really knew that they were seeing something special and unique and that it was probably a once-in-a-lifetime shot. You know, it was on MTV itself back when they were not only playing lots of music and originating great music like the Unplugged series, but you also heard music news and entertainment news. Way before there was TMZ, there was MTV. And Kurt Loder actually made the national and international announcement of Cobain's death. And it was just one of those days you can't forget. And there were so many other great acts that MTV caught unplugged. Bennett, and that's Tony. Bruce Springsteen, Nine Inch Nails, R.E.M., and of course, Page and Plant. But for me, the best was seeing Eric Clapton, the guitar god stripped of his electric guitar, doing some of his greatest compositions, unplugged. Let's take a listen. See if you can spot this one. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, MTV was born. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about music. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song. We've done all kinds. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up there on the topic section. I think we got about 20. Everything from The Doors to country music. One of my favorites, There Goes My Life, the story of Kenny Chesney's hit. But there are so many from every musical idiom. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Story of a song. And what were we listening to as we bumped in was Christina Aguilera's Candyman, which was written by our next storyteller, Linda Perry. According to Aguilera and Perry, the song was a tribute to the Andrews Sisters, iconic World War II song recorded in 1941, the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. Ever wonder how a chart-topping hit single is made? Well, here's Greg Hengler. Most of our story of a songs have been based on timeless and relatively deep songs. What we are about to do now is tell the story of a song that falls into, let's say, a less profound category. To tell this story is former lead singer and songwriter of the early 90s rock group, Four Non Blondes, Linda Perry. Remember them?
Linda Perry left the band in 1994, started two record labels, and began writing and producing hit songs for the likes of Gwen Stefani, Adele, Alicia Keys, and Christina Aguilera. Here she is to tell the story of how one of her hit singles was created. Perry said that the process of making the song was so unlike me. According to her, she was going through a weird phase during which she wanted to learn how to program drums. Here's Linda Perry. I'm very, you know, I'm always interested in things. And so, like, I, I called up a friend. I'm like, what's that sound out there right now that you're hearing on the radio and stuff? And they're like, oh, you got to get a Triton. It's a, called a Triton keyboard. I'm like, a Triton keyboard. All right. And then what, what's that sound on the drums? Like, what's that thing? It's obviously not real drums, but what's that? Oh, those are MPCs. You get these programs and there are programmed sounds already. And you can create your own and you just put it in. It loads these sounds and you got kick snares. I'm like, MPC, you know, I'm like, and then what would be like if you could get like, a, 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 you know, like a program of some sort that had like all different types of sounds, what would that be? Oh, that would be the rolling blah, blah, blah expansion thing that has all these cards. Okay, great. Thanks. You know, and so I go to Guitar Center and I buy all these things. I come back, I plug it all in, my MPC, my, my whatever Triton. And so I'm like, okay, all right. All right. What does this thing do? Okay, let me, all right. Well, let me start with the beat. Basic enough. All right, loop that down. Okay. All right, I need a bass part that goes with that. And I can't find a bass sound. So I'm like, all right, let me just pick up my real bass for right now until I figure out with that. So I pick up my real bass, just sub it out. Boom, 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 boom. Do, 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 boom, boom, boom. All right, okay, cool. That's cool. All right. Oh, what's this thing doing? I'm opening up all the sound. Clav, you know, this, you know, horns. And I just start adding all these things. I mean, everything. I mean, I have harpsichord, clav, horns. I don't know what that sound is. I mean, just there's so many sounds going on, and I just add it all. Little percussions. Oh, percussions. Just like never in a million years. Percussions in here? And now I'm just fascinated, and I'm just having a good time. All right, okay, I need Wawa, and this doesn't have Wawa. Okay, I can get my guitar, put other Wawa. All right. All right, now I need some kind of vocal, you know, and then I pick up my bullet microphone because I, I know I don't want to sound like Linda. This is a character. So I pull up a harmonica microphone, run it through this compressor, compress the hell of it. I'm like, okay, what is this song? You know, okay, now I'm going to do something Linda never does. Think, pre-think of lyrics, pre-think of a concept, you know, never done that before. So I'm like, okay. I'm going to think of every cliche I can think of. And then I just started singing the song about, okay, I'm coming up, so you better get this part. And all the lyrics are started, you know, pull up to the bumper rubber in my Mercedes Benz, you know, like just like joking and laughing as, and I'm like writing this stuff down as I'm singing. And then I record it. Literally, this all took place in a matter of 15 to 20 minutes, okay? 15 to 20 minutes. And then I'm done. It's already pre-mixed because everything is just all right there. I mean, you don't have to do much, you know, with that kind of stuff. I call up my manager. I play it to her on the phone, and she's all, what's that? I go, I just wrote a dance hit, and I knew it was a hit, you know. And she's like, 
well, you can't do it. I'm like, no, it's not for me. It's got to be for somebody else. Who do we think of? You know, and I'm thinking Madonna. I'm thinking, you know, we got to get it to whatever. And life is just a beautiful thing. Life is just, it's, this is, again, the best thing I can just tell in general that has nothing to do with what you're talking about in this story, but life just wants to give it wants to give you gifts. It has so many gifts to give you, but you just have to be open to receive them. Because once you're open, once you put your hand out, life is going to give you a gift. A week later, this crazy girl calls me, leaving this radical message on my machine. It sounds like a nut, you know, like... I don't know what this girl's going on. Are you Linda from Four Non Blonde? I think she's a fan. It sounds like, who is this? My name is Pink. You know, I'm whatever. And I start asking, do you know Pink? Oh, yeah, this girl, she's a white chick, R&B girl, pink hair. And then this video comes on, and I'm seeing this, there you go, bling, bling, ching, ching. And I'm like, no, this girl, she's got the wrong girl. Like, she wants to write with me or wants me to sing on her album. That's it. And when I met her, I was like, it was like we connected, bam. And then I played her, get the party started. I gave it to her. And I think it was two days later, she called me back or the <laughs> L.A. Reed called my manager or something like that and said, we got our first single. Is Linda interested in writing some more with her? Get the Party Started was released November 2001 as the lead single to her album Misunderstood and peaked at number one on the American charts. It became a worldwide hit, reaching number one in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, Romania, and Spain. In 2002, Pink headlined a tour of America, Europe, and Australia, the Party Tour, as well as becoming a supporting act for Lenny Kravitz's American Tour. Thanks to this single, Pink was named the top female Billboard 200 artist of 2002. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. And what a great story. Greg Hengler is always digging him out for us. And the story of his song, very different than the rest of our stories of this song, the way the song got put together. I remember when this song came out and the girls would just rush to the dance floor. I never figured out why women rush to some songs and not others. Guys don't generally rush out onto the dance floor. They follow, and they follow the lead and do their best, I think, most of us, to just uh, come along and move along and dance along. But great storytelling as always, Greg. And by the way, the next time anyone talks to you about the Constitution or the Founders, and it seems so ephemeral to you, a discussion about it, remember it was Benjamin Franklin during the constitutional debates, who insisted that property rights and intellectual property rights be protected. And so we had both of them protected. Article 1, the patent. And so all of our art spring from this. All of the ideas of all of the storytellers that we feature, the writers, the artists, everything. Not just products, folks. Ideas protected by our founding fathers and the Constitution. None of American culture possible without it exporting it to the world. The story of a song, the story of let's get the party started here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and in this next story, we're going to take a look back at one of the best and weirdest stand-ups to ever hold a mic. And by the way, we've done a lot on comedians. We were just talking about it, and Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Steve Martins was just terrific. Real insights into the life of a stand-up. Joan Rivers, what a life. Johnny Carson, just terrific stuff there. And... My personal favorite, Don Rickles, whose act would be against the law today. And we did an hour on his life and what a life it was. And now, Mitch Hedberg. He was an old-fashioned one-line spitter like Henny Youngman and an observer of the foibles of everyday life like Jerry Seinfeld. But the simplicity of his format obscured the qualities of his work that made him a legend. Quote, every book is a children's book if the kid can read. It's just one good example of classic Edberg writing. Mitch never tried to speak about issues as most comics do. Instead, he was telling jokes about, well, ducks. Here's Mitch's story. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely proud to present Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg was one of the greatest comedians of all time. He might not be a household name like George Carlin or Louis C.K., but he'll always be remembered for his signature style and unconventional offbeat delivery. Yeah, I got got to write these jokes. So uh, I sit at the hotel at night, I think of something that's funny, then I go get a pen and I write it down. Or if the pen's too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. His comedy typically featured short, sometimes one-line jokes, mixed with absurd elements and non-sequiturs. I've always wanted to have a suitcase handcuffed to my wrist. All right. My friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. I said no, but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. I'm out to dinner with a group of friends and someone offers to pay for the check. I immediately reach for my wallet because inside is a note that says, say thanks. I used to do drugs, I still do, but I used to too. Mitch displayed a visible delight in being on stage, and he embodied a warmth that would draw his audience into his world. I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. He earned a cult following and the admiration of his fellow comics. I order the club sandwich all the time, and I'm not even a member, man. I don't know how I get away with it. I like my sandwiches with three pieces of bread. So do I. Well, let's form a club. Okay, but we need some more stipulations. Yes, we do. Instead of the cutting the sandwich once, let's cut it again. Hell yeah, four triangles. We'll position them into a circle. And in the middle, we will dump chips. Or potato salad, cool, I can deal with that. Let me ask you a question, how you feel about frilly toothpicks? I'm for them. Well, this club is formed then. I like to take a toothpick and throw it in the forest and say, you're home. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hedberg moved out when he turned 18 to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comic. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? 
You gotta draw the line somewhere. <laughs> to hell with purple people. <laughs> Unless they're suffocating. <laughs> then help them. He lived out of his car and honed his routine and built his reputation playing comedy clubs across the country throughout the 1990s. Here's fellow comedians Shard Hogan, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell, and Chuck Savage. The unique thing about Mitch is that he didn't do a lot of uh, typical setup type, you know, joke jokes. It was just so much different than anything anyone was doing or is doing today. Here was a guy standing on stage with his eyes closed, just kind of doing this, you know, uh, thoughts, basically, that were like hilarious and so out there. And as a comic, you kind of always know where the joke's going, like, you know, with his stuff, it was always, it blew me away. A good comic says funny things, and a great comic says things funny. And that's what Mitch did, he said things funny. When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. It's weird to hear that a guy who made his living performing in front of people was terrified of doing so. But Mitch Hedberg had severe stage fright. And so the prototypical Hedberg performance involved dark sunglasses, long hair draped over his eyes, and set long staring contests with the floor. And finally, Mitch would bookend this list by completely closing his eyes to keep the crowd at an even safer distance. You know on TV, when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish, but they let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, but they do want to make it late for something. (laughs) Where were you? I got caught. Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. Every comedian messes up a joke on occasion, but they usually ignore their flubs. Not Hedberg. He tended to ruminate on his failed jokes, criticizing them on stage at a level few comedians could ever get away with. Dogs are forever in the push-up position. That joke. That joke. That joke is dumb, I'm aware of that. Advil has a candy coating, it's delicious. And it says right on the bottle, do not have more than two. Well then do not put a candy coating around it. For I cannot help myself. Let me have 10 Advil. Do you got a, I got a sweet tooth. I think I screwed part of that joke up. I, I apologize about that. Deadspin likened it to him breaking the fourth wall. In an odd way, it made him even more endearing and relatable to his fans. I find that Duck's opinion of me is very much influenced over whether or not I have bread. You know that, Petra's farm bread, that stuff is fancy, man. It's wrapped twice. You open it and it still ain't open. That's why I don't buy it. I don't need another step between me and toast. Hedberg's innovative onstage persona brought him to the doorstep of fame, and he soon earned top billing. At the 1998 Montreal Comedy Festival, Mitch wowed the crowd. I got a king-sized bed. I don't know any kings, but if one came over, I guess he'd be comfortable. (laughs) Oh, you're a king, you say. Well, you won't believe what I have in store for you. 
It's to your exact specifications. When I was a boy, I laid in my twin-size bed and wondered where my brother was. All right. I had a cold sore. I put some Carmex on it. Carmex is supposed to heal cold sores. I don't know if it does, but it will make them shiny and more noticeable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please welcome Mitch Hedberg. Mitch! As an encore, Mitch booked the ultimate stand-up gig, a spot on The Late Show with David Letterman. I got a V-neck shirt on, man. I like V-necks, you know? And I hate turtlenecks, man. A turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. <laughs> All day. <laughs> this is so unusual to hear so much applause. I think you're trying to trick me and make me think I'm done. Letterman wanted him back right away. A rare request for stand-up comics. By the end of 1998, Mitch landed a half-million-dollar TV deal with Fox and starred in his own special for Comedy Central. He was even dubbed the next Seinfeld by Time magazine. This shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. By the early 2000s, Mitch was performing 300 shows a year, and sometimes three in a night. Hedberg never passed on a job, even at the peak of his fame, because he had been rejected so many times in his career that he felt if he didn't say yes, he might not be given the opportunity to perform again. I went to a, I went to a pizzeria, I ordered a slice of pizza, the dude gave me the smallest slice possible. If the pizza was a pie chart for what people would do if they found a million dollars, this dude gave me the donate to charity slice. <laughs> I would like to exchange this for the keep it. Ultimately, Mitch's drive to succeed and his drug use, most notably heroin, took him over the edge. This morning, we've learned a popular comic from St. Paul has passed away. Mitch Hedberg died in a hotel room in New Jersey on Wednesday. Hedberg died of a massive heart attack caused by drug abuse on March 29, 2005. Mitch was not the next Seinfeld, but he never needed to be. He was Mitch Hedberg. As a comedian, you have to start the show strong and you have to end the show strong. Those are the two key elements. You can't be like pancakes, all exciting at first, but then by the end, you're sick of them. <laughs> I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.